It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Stephen. Helen's away this week, so I'm joined by the rest of the NS Westminster team to discuss a fast-paced week in Parliament. And you ask us, should Fiona Onasania have gone to prison for one month? Helen is away, so we've decided to make a virtue out of necessity. Instead of it just being me, the whole NS Westminster team has decamped from our, our desks in Parliament to the podcast chamber. So I'm joined by uh, Patrick Maguire, political correspondent. Hello. And Elaine Correa, who's our Anthony Howard scholar. Hello. Right. I mean, I was just, it's, it's weird because I both feel it's been a busy week in politics and a week in which very little has happened of interest or import. Yeah. I mean, every week feels like that, doesn't it? I mean, we're primed to expect being rushed off our feet. And yet, you know, we're decidedly on them right now. I guess it's been a story of people taking action to defer painful conclusions. You know, May has, you know, uh, taken the wind out of Oliver Letwin's sails, a sentence no one has ever said before and will never say again, by saying she'd be willing to countenance a Brexit delay. That's a stick to wield at her hardliners. And then, of course, Labour have belatedly shifted to sort of backing a second referendum. I'm sure we'll talk about that at some length. But, I mean, it's a case of, you know, let's have the painful conclusion next week rather than this week. Right, so the kind of, the Cooper Let, the Oliver Letwin, Cooper Letwin amendment would have prevented no deal, uh, our listeners can't see, but I am doing scare quotes around that, by delay, well, by seeking to delay the Article 50 process to prevent a cliff edge. Of course, the problem with that is that it doesn't actually prevent no deal it just moves the cliff edge the net effect of this promise of course is that it means that it is it is highly unlikely it will pass it may even have been pulled at time of recording we're a couple of hours away from when those votes are expected to happen but they've kind of become a bit of a non-event i guess the the notionally although i always think it's a and well i don't think it's a non-event in terms of labor's electoral prospects but i think in terms of it passing and it meaningfully changing the brexit calculation one way or another is jeremy corbyn's support of a second referendum I think you've been talking to some of the MPs, you know, some of the MPs who voted against the Cooper Amendment, some of whom would have to come back Mm -hmm. uh, into the fold if it was to pass. From those conversations, do you think there's any prospect of a second referendum passing the House? To be honest, the short answer is no. I think we might see more people voting for the Cooper Amendment who didn't vote for it last time, who who abstained last time. 
But I think when it comes to the second referendum, there is a lot of opposition among Labour MPs because many of them represent seats where they have a lot of constituencies who voted for Brexit. And, you know, that's been kind of the central problem the party has had for a very long time. I think, from what I understand, a lot of them are hoping to... Well, they're lobbying the leader for a free vote on it. But on the other hand, they don't really want to come out publicly in favour of that because they're worried that if it becomes clear that they're going to vote down the second referendum amendment, then the ERG will, won't have so much of an incentive to vote for the deal. There's that calculation that they have to take into account. Yeah, and there's also been, on the subject of the ERG, Jacob Rees-Mogg told Remain a rag the Financial Times last night that he'd be willing to, uh, uh, there's been a sort of like, oh, massive climb down from the ERG. People are adding two and two together and making five. They're seeing that Theresa May could delay Brexit or is willing to be the one who pulls the trigger on that. And they're seeing everyone is, they're all theologically attached to the 29th of March. Uh, so there is an assumption now that you know, the ERG will climb down and take whatever Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, gives him on the backstop. Jacob Rees-Mogg told the FT last night that he'd be willing to have a... doesn't want the backstop ditched entirely. He'd be willing to accept the sort of codicil or Cox's codpiece. Steve Baker, his deputy, is taken to call in the funniest joke I've ever heard. But, you know, that's, again, the, the, the misdiagnosis of those comments. It doesn't necessarily follow that he'll agree to whatever Geoffrey Cox has put in it. So, I mean, everyone is sort of concluding now that the ERG will be cowed into supporting the withdrawal agreement but I think we could reach the next cliff edge with a similarly inconclusive set of cards and that that cliff edge is much steeper and the destination you know there's no chance of extending the cliff edge at that point. I think there is also this this weird thing where despite the fact and yeah the kind of slightly staggered launch of a confident a leadership challenge against Theresa May showed there is no button that anyone can press marked ERG MPs and gets all 90 of them to obediently vote for whatever deal is on the table, it feels to me there's this weird dissonance, right? The, the debate about a second referendum and whether Corbyn could make it happen by backing it uh, exists in this world in which the 28 Labour MPs who have already rebelled against the whip to harden Brexit in one way or another, let alone the sort of vast undertow of Labour MPs who have personally pledged not to block Brexit uh, in their own election li- literature locally who have yet to rebel, but one assumes at least some of them would, join the out-and-out rebels. We kind of Act as if that group doesn't exist when we talk about second referendum. And then when people talk about May's deal passing, people act as if that group is far larger than it is, right? Obviously, 28 MPs is a much larger number than than makes passing another referendum credible, but it's not a large enough number to pass a Brexit deal as a kind of bolt-on to the Conservative coalition minus the hardliners. Yeah, the great known unknown in all of this before... May signalled that actually March the 29th isn't the hard deadline um, that we have been led to believe was how many Labour MPs when they're staring when they were staring down the barrel of something in the last or penultimate or second week of March as it as it as it will be would say right okay we've had off on my responsibilities to stop no deal the only plausible way to do that is by voting for her deal you know Jess Phillips you know not a not necessarily of the Lisa Nandy John Mann sort of school of thought on more or less anything, said she could last week. And that was an indication of, oh, actually, you know, that Labour coalition of, you know, the coalition of the willing might be much bigger. But, you know, the the extension, the inevitability of extension means that there is no real incentive, if you're a Labour MP, 
to, to go over the top because you think, well, extension means more discussions. It means we arrive at some cross-party consensus. You look at what Amber Rudd and Philip Hammond have been saying as you know, we should use that time to hold hands and come up with a sort of Norway-style settlement. You know, it's creates a binary choice for Theresa May, but not necessarily the one she thinks it has created. It's not her deal or no Brexit. It's her deal and for the sort of critical mass of MPs she wants to convince a better Brexit. Yeah, I think this is the kind of... The odd thing is, is it's a complete myth to believe that the threat of no deal is going to damage the EU. Yeah, sorry, then it's going to convince the EU. Obviously, it would damage everyone. But it, it is a useful card for Theresa May in terms of winning over MPs. But she's kind of taken that away from herself. I'm going to put both of you on the spot and kind of you know, the question we get continued is, what do you think is going to happen with Brexit? Like, don't worry, if you're wrong, we're only going to bring it up every week. <laughs> I still think actually, that we are going to get an extension and then it will be quite a short extension and that at the end of that extension there will be some kind of deal, some kind of modified version of the Prime Minister's deal. Some of that is based on evidence, some of that is based on instinct, but I think that ultimately there will be enough MPs who will vote for a deal, especially if eventually a second referendum is completely ruled out, then all the people who are supporting that, if they're faced between the choice of no deal and a deal that you know would be better for the economy and for the country, then they would have to vote for that. I'm torn. I, I sort of do subscribe to the argument that yourself and other eminent lobby hacks like Politico's Tom McTague make, which is that this parliament is so wired into this parliament is an ability to make the necessary compromises or trade-offs or to reach that majority on Brexit, and that the point of an extension will be, even if no one knows it yet, to give time and space to have the electoral event to let you change that parliament. But I sort of think probably unlikely. I I would broadly echo what Eleni says. I think Geoffrey Cox comes back with his piece of paper. I would quite like to see him do a Chamberlain-style waving it on the tarmac thing, but I'm sure he'd be game for that as well. I'm not sure we'll get it. Geoffrey Cox gets to it on the backstop. It delivers you lots of the most of the ERG or most of the 180, a clear majority of the 118 Tories who voted against withdrawal agreement at the first time of asking. Depending on how big that number is, say it's slightly smaller than the 60 who abstained on the government motion early this month, say it's 50. Are there 50 Labour MPs who on the 12th of March will think it is imperative for me to vote for this now for the sake of the country? Given the inevitability of an extension, no. I'm not sure what other conclusion we can reach in a six-week extension other than just deferring the decision we should have made in March. Yeah, no, that does feel quite persuasive. I'm aware that every time I get a prediction wrong, it's when I go, well, loads of MPs have told me X, but I think what they're actually going to do is Y. Mm. I don't know you, but whenever you speak to a Conservative MP about an election, they basically go, no, no, unless you were to kidnap my children, and even then it would depend on if it was my favourite one, I will not permit an election. But I just think it's one thing to say that, but quite another if your Prime Minister stands up and says, I'm going to have an election, and the Labour Party, of course, has to go, well, come on then if you're feeling hard enough. It's such a big adventure for Conservative backbenchers to go, actually, do you know what, we, we're going to vote against and that. And also, for the first time in a very long time, May calling an election is a plausible threat. Mm. You look at the polls, we have a in-house rule on entertaining polls, but let's entertain them for a second. If you're, if you're in Downing Street, if you're Gavin Barwell and Robbie Gibb, you look at those polls, you look at the upward trajectory of TIG, you think... We can do them here. If you're an ERG MP, you think, oh, right, she actually could call an election now. Oh, I really don't want that, given how unpredictable the last campaign was. So will the combination of those, you know, of the hope 
in Downing Street that things could be different on the basis of TIG existing and the experience Tory MPs had last time and seeing their colleagues lose their seats, seeing May campaign terribly, might that convince them saying, well, an election could happen, an extension is probably going to happen. Are we really going to risk that and also give her a mandate to negotiate the future relationship and the Brexit in name only they all think she wants? I mean... Yeah, I just I just wonder. It's one thing, I can see them countenancing an election, but I'm not sure they will accept Theresa May fighting another election for the Conservative Party. I can. The question is, has she learned from her mistakes last time and everything she's done since then suggests that she's changed very little in every other way. So I can't see how her MPs would have the confidence in her to lead a better campaign and do well against Jeremy Corbyn. They don't really have a mechanism to remove her. So I guess that's... That's the problem for them, but I just, I just can't see her having, with her party having such little confidence in her, going for that. Mm. So that semi seamlessly brings us, of course, to the other, the newish kid on the block, the notorious TIG, who I think we've all resolved, and we are not calling Tig because under the terms of our style guide, that would mean we had to spell it lower, uppercase T, lowercase I, lowercase G, which I just think would look very silly. Look like we're unusually reverent towards playground games. Yeah. So, yeah, the notorious TIG. Yeah, the Labour Party has obviously adopted... It's activated the insurance policy that it never wanted to activate, that many MPs had privately been assured, don't worry, we will never actually get to this point, and many in the shadow cabinet had been assured, don't worry, we'll never get to this point, of backing a second referendum. Does that achieve the intended effect of meaning that there will be no more Labour defections to TIG? No pressure, guys, but of course there's the hilarious possibility that while we're in this studio, someone will have defected, so, yeah. Short answer is no, obviously. Um, just look at the reaction from sort of split adjacent or split friendly or split sympathetic people to the news that, the you know, to Chris Williamson, who said yesterday, or was it revealed yesterday to have said Labour was too apologetic about its anti-Semitism crisis. Look at the reaction from people you would think, yeah, are, with a strong tailwind, you probably could defect. For instance, say Catherine McKinnell, the new MP for Newcastle North, who was, who essentially said, "Is is this an invitation for more of us to leave?" So it's important to remember, given the first thing anyone said at that press conference, Luciana Berger, Mike Gates, most notably, was that the Labour Party was racist, and it, first and foremost, it was a moral, not sort of policy-based choice. Although they would argue that, you know, not stopping Brexit or facilitating Brexit is a moral question as well. So the split is much bigger than Brexit. Will this have stayed the hand of people who, in other circumstances, would leave? Yes, undoubtedly. Uh, that was John McDonald's motivation for making this argument internally, wasn't it? But are people going to find other reasons to go if they really want to go? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, notably the TIG, when it launched, made very little of its Brexit stance and was talking a lot more about the Labour Party under its current leadership and how Jeremy Corbyn shouldn't be Prime Minister and about anti-Semitism. And that is much more damaging to the party than anything about Brexit. So I think any more defections that would come would be, again, about anti-Semitism. And I think that that might well happen, uh, seeing as the party hasn't done very much to convince its MPs that it's taking action against anti-Semitism within its membership. Yeah, I mean, I think, I kind of think the countervailing pressure, as you say, at their launch, they did not really present themselves as a Brexit party. Two of three out of the three of their conservative infusions or defections, whatever you want to call that sort of next rank, uh, yeah, that next wave of, of defections, did not sound that, you know, Brexit was part of their thing, but it was not the be all and end all. But Subri, who is in many ways both their worst and their best media asset, 
because she's very good at it. She's got a lot of presence, but the messages she is most comfortable saying and says off the cuff are not wholly concordant with their overall messages and does make them look a lot more Remainy than they did already, I think. Yeah, it's like, if you can forgive me a brief trip into a, a period of history that I don't actually remember, it's like Subri would have made a great leader for the two Conservative MEPs in the late 90s for the pro-Euro Conservative Party and were desperate for like a an, a, an MP to join them. They wanted Clark or Heseltine to make the case for pro-European pluralist conservatism for much the same reasons as the as the three amigos left last week. But is she necessarily a great asset for SDP Mark II, regardless of its you know claims to want to break the mould? I Like you say, I don't necessarily think so. Yeah, and I think um, the thing which understandably annoys a lot of people who are, you know, yeah, whether they're to Labour's left, whether they're Greens, whether they're Liberal Democrats, whether they're people contemplating a split. You know, Labour's secret weapon in seeing off all of those threats is the intense tribalism of its MPs and actually quite a, you know, decent-sized chunk of its its vote, the kind of affection that that brand inspires for people. And because she is, in many issues, to the right of the other two, uh, I refuse to call them the Three Amigos. Uh, but uh, you That's know. what they call themselves. They self-define as Three Amigos, and it would be remiss of me not to... Uh, but especially she's to the right of Porthos and Aramis and whatever the other one was called. There were actually four musketeers, weren't there? But um, because she's slightly to their right and she sounds a lot like a conservative, hmm. I think it does have a slight deterrent effect. But I also think you're right. You know, Labour is visibly not providing the level of reassurance that MPs want... It doesn't feel likely to me than than the Chris Williamson story is is over, and in any case, right, the Chris Williamson thing is real talk—a a sort of lie MPs tell themselves and people who want to stand the Labour Party tell themselves. It, it's a lot like saying, "Oh, I, I, I you know, I, I, I like Blair, but Mandelson is is too far." Yeah, one of the one of the most—it's like you say—it's a lie. Labour MPs tell themselves one of the most illuminating conversations I've ever had before TRG was TRG was formed with, with one of its founders, and I said, you know, if and they present a very persuasive case for why the Labour Party was finished. And I said, well, this is an analysis. Why did the people, you know, second referendum referendum advocates within your party, you know, people of your ideological hue, why haven't they reached this conclusion as well? Because Labour back then was doing everything it could not to move to a second referendum. The leadership made its contempt for the idea abundantly clear. And they said, well, if you take as your starting premise that you will never leave the Labour Party, that nothing can make you leave the Labour Party, which indeed is something Ben Bradshaw, the Remainiest of all Remainers, said last week, then you can ultimately find whatever evidence, no matter how tenuous, to reconcile yourself with that conclusion. And back then it was what looked like a conference motion that had been cooked up to allow the leadership to pretend it might one day move to a second referendum, but not actually do anything for it. And, you know, now is Chris Williamson the sort of the other anti-Semitism issue equivalent of that, I wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Thank you. Today's question comes from Ed Hall. Do you think it was right to give Fiona Onasania a short custodial sentence? These punishments are rarely thought to reform criminals or deter prospective criminals. And so basically that is the question. Fiona Onasania, who you may have missed, is, I was about to say was the MP for Peterborough, still is the MP for Peterborough, convicted of conspiring to pervert the course of justice over points on her licence, has just, well, so she sentenced for three months, has just ended a one-month jail sentence. How do we, Eleni, are you a hang and flog person? I, I'm really not. I don't think that uh, prison sentences are the right response to many crimes, especially crimes like this one. Uh, I think that she, I, what has she, what's the benefit of her having served this one-month prison sentence or what would the benefit be of her serving a longer one? I don't think I, there is one, essentially. No, I would agree. I would love to find some point to dissent on, but I just don't think there is, there is one. I mean, there is the question, should we hold MPs to a higher standard of behaviour than we assume of the general public? I think the answer is probably yes. It's a office with which comes, well, in the case of a backbench MP, a little bit of power, but a fair amount of responsibility. But, I mean, if if you take as your starting point the argument that actually short prison sentences and especially for women aren't particularly necessary for most crimes then you know even if you are holding her to a higher standard then in an ideal world it still wouldn't pass the custodial threshold so i i think also people are conflating this issue their responses to this question with her conduct in the wake of her conviction if you understand if you get my point it's like they see that she like you know has not resigned and he's comparing herself to jesus yeah and they sort of they, they swing they swing back against that rather than the, the sort of mere fact of the crime itself rather than her response her conviction for it the overwhelming candidate for favorite minister in this government is of course david gork who is actually quite rightly tackling the fact and we know that short jail sentences don't deter people actually just mean people leave prison with qualifications in crime and particularly as you say in the case of women who tend to have been coerced into crime crimes out of desperation etc etc it is just a then it yeah, causes family breakdown there are loads of reasons why it is bad in general and i think if you send someone to prison for one month what's the point i think the one place i disagree with the two of you on is i think because ultimately it is conspiracy to pervert the course of justice I think that is actually the only non-violent crime I would be relaxed about having quite a long custodial sentence. But if it's one month or three months or eight months in the case of Chris Hewn, why do it? Yeah, if it's sufficiently ser- serious to be the sort of exception that proves the rule on that sort of non-violent crime, then surely you should, to use the least appropriate metaphor, ever put pedal to the metal and, you know, give a proper slap on the wrist or, you know, cuff on the wrist rather than go to prison for a month. Yeah, I think it's, one that, it's a classic like either do a thing and we're not going to say on this podcast because we'll lose our universal rating or get off the pot issue right so yeah that's more from the wet liberal corner this time next week thank you very much for joining us you've been listening to the new states and podcast with me Stephen bush my colleague patrick Wire, my colleague eleni Ferreira. 
It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. You can keep track of all of our exploits by subscribing to my free morning email, Morning Call. Thank you.